That's right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Principles of Fitness podcast. My name is Cameron Harn, and this is episode number eight. On this episode, we have Rick Garrigan. He is the owner of a company called Carbon Life. You can check them out at carbonlifeusa.com. And he and his team are aiming to lead the industry in their one-of-a-kind approach to health and wellness. Now, Rick and I go over a wide range of topics in our conversations. We talk about his experience in the Army, being in charge of fitness for the 75th Regiment, to his experience coaching to a a traumatic car accident that completely altered his life and um, how he reacted to when doctors said that he was not going to be able to walk again. Well, he's the type of guy who you tell him no, and he's going to say, I'll show you. I mean, what an incredible journey that he went on to get himself back on the soccer field after that car accident. And then we go into his experience at Equinox and just kind of all the things that he's learned over the course of his 20 years in the fitness industry that he provides to his clients over at Carbon Life. Now, I think I've talked enough, so let's go ahead and dive into this conversation with Rick Garrigan. So I'm just going to go ahead and start recording, Rick. Anything you say can and will be recorded from this point on. No worries. Let's do it. All right, man. Um, Rick, just go ahead and uh, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Rick Garrigan. I am the owner and founder of Carbon Life, um, a wellness and performance company in Santa Monica, California. Um, previous experiences in the field. I've uh, been in the field for about 20 years. Uh, 10 years was with Equinox Fitness. Uh, before that was with the military and Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, I worked in conditioning with primarily soccer players at that time. Okay. And your, your background is as a soccer player, right? Yes. As far as sports goes for myself, it was uh, soccer. And then I get into a lot of things around scuba diving, skydiving, that type of stuff. Was there a specific instance where your passion for fitness got ignited? I mean, through soccer or where did you find your interest started to grow? Um, well, soccer was always a part of it, um, but I don't necessarily think it was about fitness then. Okay. Uh, it was more about performance and just being a better soccer player. Yeah. And so fitness, wellness, longevity as an athlete, none of that really sunk into my head at that time. Uh, I think it really got ignited heavier when I was in the Army. Okay. Um, it, in the Army, I had the opportunity of working with the uh, 75th Regiment and being in charge of fitness uh, for a group of guys. And that... That's where it became something that was more of a critical to mission, more important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was about being fit, not about being able to achieve, you know, scoring a goal. Okay. Um, and it made a difference there. And the, what you needed, to, what we needed to be ready for was so much more, uh, more of a variety of okay. things. So it just, that I got more interested at that point. What were some of the things that you'd make, that you would implement to make sure that people were ready for their tasks? Um, that was when I started learning more from the science side okay. rather than more of an anecdotal, you know, this is what the coach said to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because to really be ready, uh, you got to be ready for just about anything, any climate, any environment. Uh, you know, do you have to kick down a door? Do you need to jump over a wall? So it, it was more of a general fitness, you know, in general, like GPP. Okay. And hitting good, solid GPP and being able to achieve a good 70, 75% of your total capabilities in everything across the board from your flexibility to your um, strength, your power, and your endurance. 
and being able to have a balance across all of those so that you can always achieve the task in front of you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, we give up so much. If we just work on strength, we start to deplete our power. Mm-hmm. We're going to lose some endurance. So like if I want to go past random number, roughly speaking, 70% mm-hmm. of an ability, then I'm going to focus on it. So I might go through my training as a power lifter. I want to focus on the strength it takes to move that bar. Yeah. Right. Compared to being able to be that individual and be able to do a, you know, 48 inch box jump. Yeah. That's that amount of power to do the box jump might not necessarily exist in that same athlete because they've sacrificed a certain amount to get there. And that might not be the best comparison. Um, but just in that, that realm. So we can't just focus on one piece of you. How would you break down the programs then? Since you, we can't focus, is it by day that you would focus on something? Would you cross train each day? Uh, there's more of a cross training that takes place in every day. And it's, uh, and there's still a balance. There's a focus on strength a couple times a week. There's a focus on power endurance a couple times a week. Um, and then there's overall endurance and cardiovascular health. What were some of the obstacles that you faced training these, these soldiers? Mm -hmm. Um, well, some of it's injuries. Um, there's a constant breakdown in your body when you're functioning at that level, whether or not you're, uh, you know, um, a warrior athlete or whether or not you're a professional athlete. Uh, it's the same problems we run into with our weekend warriors mm-hmm. and our general pop. Um, the aggressiveness of the treatment in general pop falls back to, you know, go rest. Yeah. But the problem is, is what we found, especially working with athletes and with military, is we don't need to let it rest. We need to keep moving it. We mm-hmm. need that body to go ahead and heal and know it's okay to continue these patterns. Um, and a lot of that just falls into the science around the brain and pain. Okay. You know, um, we want we want to, we don't want to hold on to the experience in, in our bodies of that injury and our brain and the chemical reactions that can take place. It can create a chronic discomfort or a chronic pain, yeah. even though the injury's passed. And that seems to, um, in my experience, happen more when you rest rather than move. Could you elaborate just a little bit more on this pain and brain relationship that goes on with people? Um, well, imagine you stub your toe. Yeah. Or you slam your finger in a door. Mm-hmm. Or you twist an ankle. Um, it's an acute pain. The proprioception in the body goes to more of that nociception or it changes the signal. It tells you, hey, this hurts. Nervous system tries to withdraw. A little inflammation takes place. This whole process happens. Um, then it heals. So there's no, uh, there's no signal any longer from my ankle saying my ankle hurts. It's past that now. Mm-hmm. But I still wake up and have a stiff, painful ankle every morning, five years down the road. Yeah. Right? That's more of the connection from the brain and more the central nervous system having a context or something taking place. And, and we just know less about it of the, the mechan- or the uh, signaling that takes place. Mm-hmm. But there's got to be something within those neurotransmitters or this neural matrix of the brain that holds on to the ankle is hurt and sends a chemical reaction that keeps telling me I have pain. Yeah. Uh, because the injury's gone. I shouldn't have any more pain there. No. And I would hypothesize that by getting the body mobilizing and moving in these pain-free ranges during the healing process can help prevent the brain 
and the things we just don't understand as well to let go of that type of reaction i.e. The, the matrix, the way things communicate in our brain calms and it doesn't hold on our memory mm-hmm. of that being an injury. Let's say somebody has an ankle sprain. It's healed. What types of pain-free ranges of motion are you going to take somebody through to help them understand that they don't have pain in there anymore? Um, first, obviously, you know, there's going to be a period where it might only be manipulation. Okay. Manual. Yeah. A couple of days maybe to just walking on it um, to single leg standing and type activities, things to start regaining confidence. And if it needs a little bit of tape, if it needs a little support, say it needs a little lateral support, mm-hmm. you know, up the, up the peroneals or up the leg, then maybe we, we use a little kinese tape up to the fibular notch okay. and help support those tissues so those muscles aren't guarding and holding, creating tension around that joint, and that relaxes, and it allows you to become confident. And then the brain says, okay, I'm good with this. Okay. Um, and again, this is some, that's not as deep into the science. Yeah. I don't even know if I could get too deep into the science. But those would be the paths to start to take. And then we can go to our typical, you know, little perturbation training, mm-hmm. little unstable surface stuff. Gotcha. Type things. And, and it's all, it's, this is the path of PT even, mm-hmm. is to kind of follow these. Um, things like... Uh, an old saying that was shared with me with an instructor once, a uh, martial arts instructor. Uh, I cracked two ribs. And when those ribs cracked, the first thing that the response was, was, well, let's ice it. Let's, let's slow that inflammation process. Let's go with this, this thought process of healing. Mm-hmm. And this old guy that was in the um, studio came over, and, and he took the ice away from me. And he told me not to put ice on it. That's interesting. Right? And he yeah. told me putting ice in it, in his thought process, would set the pain in the bones. So from an Eastern philosophy thought process, he looked at me and he said, ice is for dead people. You don't need ice on an injury. Right? You're, you need to increase blood flow mm-hmm. and allow the body to heal that area. And so it was just two different processes to give consideration to. Was there something that first spark this interest in learning more about the body? I think the desire and the, the, the path to not just learning about the body, but just an education track for myself to continue to grow, mm-hmm. uh, started going to college. But I didn't go to college until I was in my 30s. Really? Right. So I went from high school into the military okay. and chose to go to college when I was 31 years old. Wow. So I went to college with a different mentality. Um, and so I finished a four-year degree in three years. You know, it, it was, I, I was turned on for school, so to speak, at that time. I had no desire to go to school when I was in high school. Um, I had no desire to go to school when I first got out of the military. Um, and the, well, I take that back. I went to school when I just left the military, but it was for engineering and aeronautical engineering. Oh, really? Um, and so I got licensed as an aeronautical engineer uh, and an airframe and power plant technician through the FAA um, and got a bachelor's degree in engineering. Um, that's probably when I really started to have that interest. That was when I was uh, 26 years old. Okay. Um, but that was more of a tech school um, attached to a college. Um, so the aviation program was an FAA program, and it was a little bit separate. So that was a lot of hands-on learning. Um, so I always enjoyed that part. 
the human body piece came when I went back to school when I was 31. Um, I got in a bad accident. I fractured my pelvis for the second time, broke my femur, my tibia, my skull, a lot of ribs. Um, I got in a really bad accident, and they put me in intensive care for eight and a half weeks. That's when the human body became what I wanted to be an engineer of because they told me I wouldn't walk again. And by telling me I'm not going to walk again, when I was a soccer athlete, I'm used to climbing and jumping up and down off of things. At the time, I played soccer six days a week uh, while working. Um, Coached soccer for a high school, coached a U6, a U8, and a U12 team. Um, I worked with the Virginia um, National Championship team, the U19 travel team for them. Um, So I I was very involved in movement and soccer. and then they told me I wouldn't be able to walk. So that makes me stubborn. Um, yeah, so that's, that's really what turned me on to the human body. Um, and then I had to sell, I had a business at the time as an engineer, uh, had to sell the business, because I didn't know if I'd be able to go to back to work in that, that capacity. That's what triggered me to go back to school um, and study kinesiology and exercise science. How did you get yourself out of that situation where they said, you're probably not going to be able to walk. How did you get yourself back up and moving again? Uh, I tried a little bit every day. Um, I literally tried a little bit every day to get my leg to move and to work with me, um, try to let go of the pain that it was, I was experiencing. Um, and through a little bit of movement, a little bit of movement every day, it reached a point where I could get up and I could stand on, the, on my right hip again, a single leg stand on it again. And then I literally started swinging it over a couch just trying to lift it that high and put it back down. Um, and then daily uh, therapy. Um, I had massage therapists that would come daily and work on the tissues, um, structural integration worker, mm-hmm. um, rolfing. And okay. they, they would come and work on my body every day, and uh, I would just get up and try and walk more every day. How long and, did it take you to get back to normal? Uh, once I got the rolfer working with me, um, I was back on a soccer field in eight months. Now, I wasn't really playing that much, but I was on a soccer field with uh, Virginia Commonwealth University's team, uh, running speed drills, playing a little bit, kicking the ball around. And then maybe four months after that, I was back playing full-time. And in the process, you're going to school for kinesiology? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then coming out of school, or do you find, like... You found this newfound, like, passion for helping people, I'm assuming, uh, based on what happened to you, where did you go from there? How did you, where, I guess, did your hunger take you from, from there? Uh, I started teaching. Okay. Uh, I started working with a school in uh, Chesterfield, Virginia, and uh, another school in Henrico, Virginia, as a physical education teacher and coaching their soccer programs. It's pretty rewarding as a coach to see um, youth athletes or any athletes in general progress and to see them start to achieve and overcome uh, maybe past PRs or doubts that they wouldn't be able to, to, that they didn't see themselves achieving yet. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment for you where you're like, this is awesome? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Probably the best, one of the first examples that would pop into my head right away here is uh, I was coaching uh, soccer for a high school in Virginia, uh, it was, uh, it was, let's see, last playoff game before the state championships. Uh, the team won the state championships that year. But they had the team that they hadn't beaten in three years that they had to play for the final uh, playoff game. Mm-hmm. A couple of the players 
even the day before the game, were vocalizing a lot of like we've never beat these guys. Like this, this, this is about as far as we're probably going to get. There was some negativity. Um, so we did some some exercises and some confidence development stuff together as a whole team. And then we went out and we watched a movie. And they got to pick the movie. Uh, I was a little shocked at the pick on the movie. Uh, what was it? Uh, Boondock Saints. Can't say I've seen it. Um, it's more about a couple of guys shooting everybody. Right? So, <laughs> and this is a Catholic military school that I was coaching for, uh, Benedictine High School in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And so they uh, watched the movie, kind of came together as a group again. And it was when I realized that one of the most important aspects of coaching, whether or not it's for a sports team or as a uh, personal trainer uh, or a nutrition counselor or a lifestyle coach or really any of those these opportunities where we get to elevate someone that we're, we're working with, we can see something greater in them. And if we can get across to them tr- to have trust in us, so that we can guide them to success, then we've empowered and elevated them as individuals. And to do that with that team at that time, they went and they won that game, and then they went on to the state championships. Wow. And so to see their faces, to understand that they could achieve something, that was probably one of the bigger moments wow. where, it, where it solidified that I want to keep doing this. That's incredible. Do you remember some of the... Um, the drills that you did to help get their confidence and help get them up to that level to elevate them? Um, the exercises that we did at that yes, time? Yeah. Uh, it was some trust and team building things. Um, there was everything from your typical trust falls to where they had to work together to overcome different obstacles. Uh, we did uh, some obstacle course type stuff. Okay. Um, every last bit of it was so they had to trust one another to be there for them. Mm-hmm. And in doing that process and then them getting an opportunity to sit together and have some camaraderie, which was really all the movie was, yeah. um, that gave us gave me an opportunity then to watch their interactions, pull a couple of the leaders of the, the group out um, that normally hadn't been given that role mm-hmm. with the team, um, and then allow them to, uh, what's the best way to put it, the guys that hadn't had the opportunity to kind of really be seen as leaders I put them in charge on the next day on the very next day on three of our opportunities to succeed or fail Um, and these were more the trust course type stuff and those guys being able to take that opportunity allowed for everyone else to support them because they were nervous and uncomfortable and when they got that opportunity to be supported by the rest of the team, the negativity went away. Hmm. It, it, it solidified the team. Yeah. And solidifying the team, whether or not, again, it's working with a couple of your own clients and solidifying that with each of them or whether it was with that environment with the uh, soccer team. Um, once the, you have that solidification and that means you get their trust, then we can become their guides. Okay. You know, they're the heroes. They become, we're just here as their guides. Uh, That's why it's troubling sometimes if somebody is a coach and they're talking about all their success. Mm -hmm. My client achieved this. I got my client to this. Well, the reality is, is the client got there and it wasn't work you did. It was you guided them to it. And so it's better to talk about them 
than about you in that aspect. Yeah. You know? Are these some tools that you learned from the military? Um, some of this I learned in the military. Some of this I, uh, you know, you hear a lot of things when you're growing up and you don't listen to them. And then suddenly they sink in down the road. Oh, yeah. uh, it's a combination of both. Um, some of it then I learned going uh, further. As I, as I developed as a soccer coach, um, I went up to a FIFA B-level coach. Mm-hmm. Um, so going through even going through all the different programs and education courses that go with that, it really helped me solidify understanding the team even better. Okay. Um, working with youth, working with youth probably helped me become a better coach uh, than the military did. The military helps with the leadership side and, and, yeah. and understanding your kind of roles and positions. But the rewards that came with working with youth, uh, I think they were no greater, but uh, more influential in the long run. Yeah. What are some of the things that you learned from working with youth athletes that you probably still use today? Patience. Patience? Patience. And it falls apart even still today. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's, it really comes down to patience. And then also identifying this. The piece that transfers even more into today would be, uh, or as much in today, um, is being able to regress things. Mm-hmm. Set people up for success. That's huge. Identify where they are, set them up for success, but yet be challenging them for something they don't believe they can accomplish. Again, guiding them to success rather than beating them, you know, rather than trying to put the square peg in the round hole. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times as coaches, I think we, this is what I want for my client. This is what I want for my team. This is what I want to make happen. And we either don't identify where people are, what the weak links are, and how to improve the weak links so everything else works. And we end up going too fast. Or we put things on people that they they survive through in our training sessions. Yeah. They get a benefit from in some degree because you know, if you make somebody move and if you load their body, something's going to change. We hope always a positive rather than a maladaptation takes place. Uh, but they more survive through the rather than thrive. And I think if we choose the appropriate things, identifying where people are, then we can allow them to thrive in the environment while training. Um, uh, Pavel says, says it in a way of like, uh, you should always have something left in the gas tank. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to kill yourself. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a point of diminishing returns that takes place around this. Yeah, absolutely. And there's obviously a time and a place where my workout needs to gas me. Like I need that anaerobic press, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but that's a short sustained part of a program. And then that needs to be appropriate for the person as well. Yeah. You know, so I think that's the biggest thing that I probably carry today still and have constantly had reinforced um, whether or not the education has been around nutrition, around movement, um, strength training or cardiovascular training, uh, mobility and self-care type activities. That's that's been probably one of the things that I apply to it the most. You move over to New York. You're at Equinox. What was it like for you being in the personal training environment for the first time? Well, I mean, it was kind of exciting. I mean, I moved to New York City. I mean, it was culture shock to move to New York City. I lived in the Caribbean for years before that. So to move to New York was quite the culture shock. But it was also a, it was a good community. The, the club I walked into, the company itself was a good experience. And so there was some camaraderie right away. But the actual 
personal training piece of it, uh, awkward, uh, scary, wasn't really sure. And yet here I had already worked and trained people Mm -hmm. to elite levels to achieve the best they had to their greatest potential for years. So I had confidence in what I was asking people to do, but it was a one-on-one practice with people who didn't have the same interests as the people I'd worked with before. So it led to a, a discomfort around it. Okay. I don't know how to describe the discomfort totally. I, I say it's more of a, like a little bit of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to re- like learn to reestablish myself in that environment in a different way. Do you remember some of the first training sessions you had? Maybe your first orientation, do you remember how that went? I felt like it went like crap. All the <laughs> feedback was good. Um, but yeah, I felt like it was disjointed, no flow to it. Like, you know, I wasn't sure about it. If I shared all the information I needed to with someone, was I talking too much and sharing too much information with this person? Uh, so I doubted every bit of it. Did so, they end up buying? Yes. They did? They did, yes. Oh, uh, I, the very first person that I... Uh, did a, um, with Equinox and Equifit mm-hmm. uh, or an intake process and, and everything with. Uh, yeah, he was a client three times a week, 5.30 in the morning for eight years. Wow. Um, he moved to New Jersey. He still drove in from New Jersey. He worked downtown. He still came to the Upper West Side to go to the cl- same club still. Uh, then he changed to the, like, I changed clubs uh, to um, Columbus Circle. And uh, he followed me there, uh, and he trained with me all the way up until the day I moved to California. No way. Yeah. So he obviously had a lot of trust and faith in you. What was it that you did to establish that relationship? I think it, you know, as cheesy and simple as this may sound, it's just active listening. It's just taking the time to hear someone speak. People will always tell us exactly what they need. We don't have to be rocket scientists. They'll tell you five times if you just take the time to talk to them and just keep asking questions. And then I think what helps establish that relationship more is then you have to share it back with them. You have to say, I hear what you're saying. This is how I'm interpreting it. Here is a professional or some of the things that I would recommend. What parts of this, like pick one, like give them three options. You know, as a coach, you can guide them by picking three options. No more than that, really, because it just gets too much to choose from. And they just need to pick one. Each of those options can be totally different and, in, and attached to different things. One could be about self-care. Mm-hmm. One could be about changing an eating habit. And another could be about just show up and train. Like, just show up or start going for walks every day. Like, it could be such light things. But when you hear what somebody's telling you is their weakness and their problem, you can pick those three things to address that one weakness that they've admitted five times. Um, How many times have you done an interview or an intake on someone and they'll talk about whether it's tight hamstrings or they want to lose weight? They'll tell you 10 times, I know if I just stretched or if I worked on my posture, my hamstrings wouldn't bother me as much. I know I need to do this. And then they move on and they tell you something else. And then they come right back to the thing that's irritating them most, that hamstring. Or, you know, I know I need to lose weight. But I go out to eat every night. Like, I probably should learn to cook at home. And then you talk for a while, and they come back with you. Well, you know, I probably shouldn't have those desserts every time I go out. I wouldn't have dessert (laughs) if I stayed home. Like, you know, they keep telling you the same thing. And so you just have to take the time to listen and then share back with them. One of the things I'm hearing is blah, blah, blah. You go out too much, and you eat dessert. you're, You're sharing with me that you'd like to not do this anymore. How would it make you feel? 
if you stayed home for a couple, like you chose one night a week to go out and made that a special night? Would that make it feel better? Would you, like, how do you feel when you do these things? Is one of the questions I like to ask people rather than to try to tell them. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty, as many people will say, of I'll, I'll lecture a little bit too much sometimes. I I'll go off track a little bit sometimes. Yeah. Um, but in that intake process, it's, it's got to be a fluid conversation rather than a, a dictation from a coach. And then they feel that they're being heard. Yes. And then finally he, or that client in particular, makes that decision not to do it anymore and the relationship starts to build and now you've got a long-lasting client. Yes. If you can pick that the, one, the three things that all could end up addressing that big rock, that mm-hmm. issue that's in the way for that person, then you're giving them those choices, but you're giving them those choices. This is where the coach's confidence has to come out. You have to make clear statements. If we do this, this is kind of what we can look for from a behavior, and it has to be simple. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. And when I say simple, it's, it's, again, identify where the person is. What are they willing to commit to change? And then you step back a little bit. It's not like I'm trying to make your bench press better and I got to dial it in and no, we're going to add two and a half pounds on each side here today, like for this next set. We're, we're trying to push you for the adaptation in our strength training. Does that make sense? Yeah. Whereas I don't want to try to push a behavior change. Okay. A behavior change isn't something we force. A behavior change has to be something that's so simple for me to do, I start doing it without thinking about it. It becomes unconscious activity for me. So I'm not going to, we don't want to pick something for someone that is at the limits, at the edge of their limits, mm-hmm. right? We want to dial that back, dial it back 10%, 15% so that it's easier for them to do. Okay. You know, drop it 50%. If that's where you identify, they need to start. And if we do that, then the relationship becomes solidified because we've picked something that is addressing what they want to address, i.e. their goals. We're coming up with a simple behavior that if we can get them to do it for two or three weeks, it becomes, an act, it becomes part of their life. It's a new behavior. And if that takes place, then the confidence that the client, that the, the athlete has in the coach just went through the roof because now that athlete or client has achieved their goal. Mm-hmm. They can see that this path is going to get them to that long-term outcome that they're looking for. Yeah. And so it becomes more of the behavior change model. I've had cases where I feel that, you know, a client's telling me the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. That I need to lose weight. I need to, I want to get into a better shape. And I try to establish good trust, communication, and it's almost like I hit, uh, I hit a wall as if they're too afraid to make the change happen. Um, how do you overcome those types of fears where, and even in myself it's happened where I sabotage myself from the change because either it's some type of subconscious fear of like, I don't, maybe it's unknown, and I don't know what could come of, you know, if I achieve this, what's going to happen? How do you overcome something like that? Uh, 
I would say twofold uh, to that. One, I might be addressing the wrong thing with someone. Okay. Even if it's for myself. Or it might be too an aggressive approach. There's a reason and we should respect that there's a discomfort or a fear towards something. And so if I get too close to that threshold for someone, that it, that's the stimulus they get is more of a fear. Mm-hmm. Fear turns to more anxiety, which means failure, when it's unresolved fear. And so if we keep pushing somebody into this space or we do it to ourselves, and we're all guilty of doing it to ourselves, then it's easier to throw your hands up in there. It's easier to feel overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's better for us to identify as coaches that what the options are that we're choosing for a behavior change may be too aggressive if it makes the client feel overwhelmed. Because when a client becomes overwhelmed, or any of us become feeling overwhelmed about something, then what first takes place is hands go up. I can't do this. Mm -hmm. So we lose motivation. So we can have all the skills in the world to make the change, but if I feel overwhelmed, I lose motivation to accomplish the task. Yeah. And so as a coach... You know, we're not cheerleaders. We're not here to motivate you that way, but we need to drive intrinsic motivation. We need to inspire, right? Rather than motivate. I'm so glad you said inspire. Yep. I feel that inspiration is much stronger than motivation. I can't stand the word motivation anymore. Yes, I I would agree. I think they're different things. Absolutely. And so that's even why with Carbon Life, I get a plug here, see? Our tag (laughs) is inspire, empower, Elevate, And that is a coach. That's how we can guide someone. Um, and the first thing is to find that inspiration. And so if we give you something that's overwhelming, we just destroyed the possibility of step one. Mm-hmm. And that's that intrinsic drive and motivation. So. so how did you advance through Equinox? Like, how did you go from personal trainer to where did you finish with Equinox? Um, so I... Went to Equinox. One of the one of the values that I learned from my grandfather uh, was if you're going to enter into something, especially if it's something new to you, start at the bottom. Be a janitor. You might want to be president. Just be a janitor first. Learn the jobs. Wow. Right. Uh, my grandfather retired from the military as a colonel, um, coming out of World War II. He uh, came back. He was. In an engineering unit at that time, they blew up train tracks and then rebuilt them. Um, he came back, going to go to work for the railroad as an engineer. He started as a signal worker. That's the lowest paid position in the railroad. And he retired as president of the railroad. So I, that's the, the motivation, that piece of seeing that type of integrity. Yeah. And that was something he always kind of tried to instill was learn every piece of this. Don't think you're better than another part of it. Um, so I went to work for Equinox as a tier one trainer. Um, and they, they offer you opportunities when you've got the previous experience and the certifications and everything that I came in with uh, to be hired at other levels. Um, but I didn't know the company, and I didn't know the industry. Um, as I said, I was nervous the first time I worked with a client after working with people for years. So uh, I went in as a tier one. Um, I, I did fast track fairly quickly through the ranks. Um, of the company and at that time there was four tiers with their structure Um, I went through all their education uh, made their tier three once I became a tier three then I got offered the opportunity to become one of their educators Um, 
I developed into a position that was uh, a senior educator for the Equinox Fitness Training Institute, or the FTI program, which is two pieces. One is all the staff goes through it. Uh, to get to each tier as yeah. a coach. And then they also have a, a external training academy that people will pay to and go for seven to eight weekends. Hmm. Um, so I taught that platform as well in New York and here in California when I first moved out here. Um, so that got me back involved with education. Um, very shortly after I was uh, in the FTI program as an instructor, I got promoted to their Tier 4 program, which is their highest program and highest level. Uh, they call it Tier X now. Um, and then I worked with and helped develop the education platform for the Tier 4 program. Um, yeah, and, and got great opportunities pretty much from that point on. And that's what also feeds into a lot of my knowledge base is that 10 years with the company, or nine years, um, eight of them, being involved with opportunities to go to education, teach at the same time. And as a teacher, you really, that's when you get to learn, I feel. Like, that's when I get to learn things the best, that I retain them the best. Yeah. Uh, and I can see application of them the best. And that's, that's maybe my, my greatest excitement around knowledge is learning how to apply it. Like, where does it fit? Um, and then uh, I became an influencer on the redevelopment of their education, so I sat on the board of... Uh, um, the group that was deciding what the new curriculum would look like. Mm -hmm. um, but I also got the opportunity to work with most of the leaders in the industry. Uh, I got opportunities to work with uh, everybody from Mike Boyles to Michelle Dalcourt, uh, Mike Finch with Animal Flow, um, Gary Gray and 3D Motion stuff, and just a lot of opportunities. Thomas Myers for Body Work wow. and Simone Linder from KMI. Um, just I got the opportunity because we vetted. Um, I was one of the three or four seniors that got the opportunity to vet new products as well. So from a waist belt that you could put on that will tell you your power output, to new wearable devices, we would constantly get the opportunity to vet a lot of this equipment. That's awesome. Um, so then I moved to California with the company as a manager um, and managing in their Tier 4 program. Um, mentoring for the program as well uh, and other coaches. Um, so I've always just kind of been involved in the development of the teams and the coaching staffs with Equinox. Very cool. Now with the, the vetting process of the programs, was there anything that stuck out at you? Anything that kind of like caught your eye? Uh, lots of opinion, uh, lots of anecdotal, lots of people run with things that mm -hmm. uh, sometimes are awesome and it's like the right path and sometimes they, it, it gets a little skewed. Okay. I would say it's one of the biggest things I run across. Um, and what I mean by that is, take nutrition as an example. Uh, how many different diets are there? Thousands. Thousands. But bioenergetics and how the body processes foods and everything, that's pretty well-studied product. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, we got a pretty good idea, even though there's a lot we still need to learn. But the 10% we know about the human body, we're pretty solid with that 10%. Yeah. Right? Well, how many different cookbooks are there out there? How many quint diets? Like, there's thousands. I could fill this room mm -hmm. five times probably because there's principles. And basic principles, if we looked at them and we just talked about them, then the Atkins diet or the paleo diet, they're only picking like one to three out of, say, five or six principles mm -hmm. and running with them. 
well, we're biological, right? And, and we have to treat us holistically or completely. Right? I'm not big on the word holistic, but completely. Meaning, just like now I come back to my strength training side, well, I can strength train, but that means I might be losing a little bit of mobility or flexibility. I mm-hmm. might be creating too much compression into the body, tightening certain things down because I'm doing primarily axial loading. We're adding to gravity. Um, so then I'm not allowing myself to develop other forms of strength. You know, maybe I spend more time working on starting strength and positional strength. But then where's the tensile strength in my body if I'm not allowing it to have that multidirectional load go into it? So then I might get weaker. So I'm only focusing on one pillar, so to speak, or one set of princi- one piece of the principles when I'm only doing one activity for my body all the time. And that's going to lead to eventually the highest risk of injury, the highest risk of deterioration in your body because we're, we're, we're ignoring other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always like to say, let's take the basic principles. Because if we take some basic principles, we can, all, we can pretty much be sitting over at JPL lab, a jet propulsion lab, with some engineers at lunch. And we could talk about things based on principles, whether or not we're talking about the human body or a jet engine. They're kind of similar principles. They're the same underlying components that we utilize to explain everything that we do. Whether or not it's how do you save money, whether or not it's how I improve the human body, or whether or not it's how I build a rocket. These principles are pretty much the same, and they start to build off of simple things like physics. Um, And so if I want to vet information in a particular field, then what are the key principles that I would be applying in that field? I want to get a yes in each of those columns. If I get a no in one of them, I have to ask, why is that a no? What's going on with this that it's not meeting all the principles? What's the hole? What's the failure point in it? And it doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing, but it allows me to vet it. So imagine you were going to do that for a client. Is it a good idea to have somebody doing, say, a depth jump, and they have no lateral stability, so they get a big medial drop or valgus knees? No. Probably not a good idea. No. Right? But is there a way that then we can say, well, what can we do with that person? Because there's a principle right there that just got broken. Right? Yeah. They look, they, boom, we've got a problem. Right? So now we have to say, what can we regress them to that we get a yes in all those boxes? Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Kind of. So that's, that's possibly like once opinion gets involved too much, you know, it's uh, you get lost from the science. And the science can both, like, the principles can tell us whether something anecdotal or science-based is, is a good choice. Um, I'm probably rambling a little bit about that. But no, that's, it's that, totally that, fine. That would be, Ram- uh, this is what it's for. Ramble away. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that would be kind of one of the biggest things I've seen. Is there any program out there right now that is abiding by those principles that you feel meets those check marks? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say there's plenty of them that actually, let me rephrase that. There's plenty that do hit that. Okay. But there's always a program missing something. Um, You know, I won't throw names around, but, like, if I go over to this group and it's it's all about getting stronger. Mm -hmm. Well, that group doesn't really seem to want to take care of their aerobic base. 
they might only be introducing loads certain ways into their body, so they're ignoring other aspects of the human body. So that program, although it's a really great strength program, it's missing out on aerobic capacity, cardiovascular health, and possibly flexibility and mobility in the joints. So I make a little like yeah. And so everybody takes something out in order to focus on something. And we live in a world today where we should specialize. Yeah. Right? And that's more of why I say there's not really a program out there. Because everybody tries to specialize in something rather than encompass everything. And this is where the, you know, again, the word holistic. Like, we have to take care of every part of our bodies. And that's whether or not I'm an operator, I'm a high school athlete, or I'm a weekend warrior, or I'm a grandmother and I want to be able to play with my grandkids for five more years. We still got to meet all the needs. Mm-hmm. And we got to identify as coaches what's the greatest need to focus on first for that person. Is it actual hypertrophy? Possibly not. Most people walk in with enough muscle to do whatever they need to do. We still want to make them stronger because there's other aspects to that. But most people come in strong enough to do their daily activities. Yeah. Right? Um, so what I always like to say is we can't have a dogmatic approach. If I'm dogmatic approaching something, I've put blinders on and I'm ignoring other deeds, mm-hmm. other facts, other things. So following just one program, I would say, is being too dogmatic. Just doing yoga all the time and just doing yin or just doing vinyasa, like they're great things, but if that's all you ever do, we can set a line up hundreds of people that that's what they did, and we can see stability and strength issues, bone density issues that take place a couple of years after they stop their practice, mm-hmm. right? Because it doesn't meet all the needs of a biological organism as it ages. Now, I can be a bodybuilder. I'm going to find there's the same problems exhibiting themselves in different ways because now I've done nothing but develop lots of hypertrophy, but also along the way that develops a lot of fibrotic tissue. Yep. Right? And as the fibrotic tissue, I mean, that's dead tissue. So now I have poor quality tissue. And so the bodybuilder, as they age, stiffens more than they naturally should compresses their joints more than they naturally should. And I have yet to meet a bodybuilder. And I'm not beating up the sport. It's great sport. It's what created our industry, right? Uh, but those individuals always tell me about pain. Yeah. And they live in pain. So they've ignored something. So the dogmatic approach, although it can lead to results in an outcome that you're looking for, say strength or power, um, cardiovascular output, um, but you got to know that we need to bring some other programs in over our year so that we can create balance for our bodies. And from that, I believe we can elevate ourselves to whatever that given sport is or activity to actually achieve a greater potential in ourselves rather than focusing just on the one thing in a dogmatic approach. Yeah. I know that for myself, I'll, I'll come at clients with that approach, that dogmatic approach, if I've gone to, let's say, a weekend certification, I come back, I'm fired up, I'm like, this is what we have to do. We start doing it for a long time, and then I'm like, you know, actually, we can incorporate a couple more basic exercises from a while ago, and then I find that they become more engaged, they become, you know, then all of a sudden we see more progress develop from them also, and, I mean, it, it gets, you know, 
every I think we all just get caught up in that like that new innovative what's not so innovative that new form of exercise science or not exercise but exercise science but just new form of training and then that becomes like our everything for yes. a period of time I mean you spent nine years at Equinox was there anybody that you would consider to be your mentor and how did they mentor you and make you a little bit better well, I would, I, would, I would definitely say there was some management that uh, I worked under um, that directly and some that indirectly uh, made me better and helped, uh, whether it was direct mentoring or um, indirect mm-hmm. around that. Um, uh, one of my coworkers probably uh, had more influence in many ways. Um, and that, uh, Antonio uh, Cordova... Um, who has since left Equinox uh, years back when I, yeah, a couple years before I did, um, opened a facility, a precision athlete in Manhattan, and now I believe uh, he just relocated uh, upstate New York. Um, both as a mentor and as a uh, more of a comrade going through the learning process, um, he was just as much a support as a mentor. Uh, in in in, the, in, the, in my transition into personal training, yeah. How was that relationship between you two? Can you explain a little bit more for me? Um, he introduced me to things that uh, I hadn't been introduced to. Um, he also challenged me, um, and he also like, and I mean, challenged me to physically regain strength and abilities, um, push myself more. Um, he uh, he also was you know there to help guide me, and we would have great conversations around client management, around working with our clients, um, around what is progression and regression of things, what is appropriate, what's too much. Um, I remember when I first, uh, just before uh, the functional movement screen really was uh, starting to grow, Equinox uh, vetted it and worked with it. Um, and another, another individual that was a great mentor, uh, Geraldine Coopersmith, uh, with Equinox. She was in charge of the FTI program there. Um, pulled some of us together and said, hey, we're going to we teach the FMS to you. We want to get your ideas run, and let's see if we can have a scalable model to share this in the company. Um, and so I learned all this stuff about correctives. And, oh, my God, we can't, we can't train on top of dysfunction. And, like, and so I did what I see too many people doing in this industry. Um, I spent about a year probably where I wasn't making people exercise anymore enough. Yeah. Right? I just, it was too much mat time, as I put it. Um, and so even with Antonio's influence around that, we both did that a little too much for eight months to a year. And then we recognized, hey, wait a second, like, this has a place, but this isn't where that place is in our programs, in our program, and what we do with people. Um, because we're not, then I hate the word correctives. Like, you're not correcting anything. If something needs to truly be corrected, that's what doctors are for. That's what physical therapists are for. That's, a, that's a, an acute problem or something that has now not been treated and became chronic. Uh, but what we do, I think, is more powerful. I don't think it's about correction. I think it's about movement. Mm-hmm. I think the human body will correct itself if we apply some common sense and some basic principles to our approach of working with the client. Then we can set them up for success where they can thrive 
rather than try and survive our training sessions. Yeah. And they can always get better. Um, it goes back to, uh, I think something I mentioned a little while ago, and that is we have to move our bodies. Um, I was describing the rehab for my hip. It wasn't traditional by any means. I just wanted to make sure my hip moved again. Um, and I kept moving it and kept pushing it, but just that, just enough that it's not pushing the thresholds. Mm-hmm. Right. So from a mentoring standpoint, I think that that was the biggest piece. Um, and that got reinforced for me, um, working, uh, at, uh, with Mike Boyles briefly, um, at their facility and Mike wouldn't let any, anything uh, come into the program that wasn't vetted first. So you were talking about the weekend workshop. And every trainer does it. You go to a weekend workshop, you get excited, and you come back. I went to a sandbag workshop. I went to a kettlebell workshop. I went to a correction exercise workshop. Suddenly that is, like, inundated upon every single person they work with. Yep. Well, it's great for the trainer to do that. It really is. Outside of from a business standpoint where it's not a good idea, it's great for a trainer to do that because they just have guinea pigs and they're just beating up their clients with something new that they think they <laughs> learned that they're excited about. Yeah. Right? The reason it's great for the trainer is they get to learn how to coach it and what it is because they get to burn through so many people so quickly. The bad side of that is what's that doing for all your clients? If you already had a path you were following with them, why divert so uh, so abruptly, hmm. right? That's not doing justice to the to your client any longer, and that was something that really got reinforced when I was sitting in some meetings with Mike Boyle's staff. Um, several staff members had gone to our KC workshops, gotten certified kettlebell. They wanted to bring kettlebells into the gym. Mike said, "No, that's not in our program." We can vet it. We can talk about it. We can start saying, why would that tool be better than something else we're utilizing? Is it the best tool for something? And for, if I'm not mistaken in this, obviously, don't quote this one, but I think it took over a year and a half before Mike said, you know what? We can use kettlebells for goblet squats and Turkish get-ups. And I I could be way off on my time frame. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't part of that organization. Um, I just had the opportunities to work up there with them on several occasions. Uh, But, like, things had to be vetted. And I think that's better for a coach. I think the way that the coach should go to the weekend workshop and come back with that information excited is now let's get back to the team development and the community of our facility. And that's when we can share what we've learned and excited with other coaches and continue to have an educational component mm-hmm. to the community of the coaches within a facility. I think that then bleeds over to the client's success. Yeah, I love that. That makes sense. Um, how do we shift, I think, the general population's mindset and the personal trainer's mindset or the fitness professional's mindset from getting your clients to survive to thrive? Because there's gyms popping up all over the place, and it's all about just making them survive, giving them a grueling workout and then leaving. How do we shift that paradigm over to thriving now? I, th- I think the, the industry is starting to splinter a little bit around that. And what I mean by that is there's, 
there's the come crush yourself side, mm-hmm. right? Um, highest sets of injuries, highest destruction to the human body, uh, people doing things that are well above and beyond their athleticism and capabilities, and utilizing things that are actual skill sets. Uh, a barbell snatch is a skill. Yep. It's not an exercise. It should be utilized as a skill. Can it help develop power? Absolutely. Yeah. Right? But then, again, is that the right thing for the person? Do they have the skill to do it? Um, right tool for the job. Uh, so there's that side. And then there's the side that is learning or, or developing more and more about flow, about integration of the human body and how we can function and move through space and be uh, more about more like loaded movement training type things. Then there's the side of what's kind of progressing into the industry now. And that is more of the evolution of the industry is people becoming more like health coaches, mm-hmm. right? And I think in time, the greatest way to bridge this gap is going to be through education. I feel like education is the key. Um, I think that, like anything, if I went into an office and I was going to start managing a new team, usually you're looking around at it and you're going, okay, is everybody on board or is there somebody that's really not on board here? And I might have to get rid of them. And we hire younger people, new people to come in over time. Well, over time, the new people coming in are what changes things, not the old people that have been there. And I think one of the most important things is not just from an education standpoint, of like lecture and learn, uh, it's getting more professionals in the field that are working successfully with people that aren't making big money out of like giving lectures and traveling around on different platforms, a platform to talk to the public hmm. and share. Uh, and I think we're seeing more of a drive towards some of this, even in nutrition from doctors coming out and saying, hey, here's what's bad about sugar. Here's what's wrong about eating this. Here's why you should identify your food allergies, right? Which is going against the status quo in the food industry. You know, so now you have nutritionists that are younger and coming in and they're preaching against the industry. Yeah. Right. And I think we're seeing more and more people challenging the industry of training by saying, hey, wait a second, like, look what happens when you're just always doing this. And so I think that dogmatic approach is starting to get broken down. And young people coming in, getting educated to understand it's not a corrective exercise. It sets somebody up for success, and this is part of their self-care. It's not what we do for an hour twice a week. They need to do this three times a day, seven days a week. They need the response. They need to learn to do this. We need to teach them to this. Mm-hmm. So then the corrective side of the world can fit. We all should be taking care of ourselves on a daily basis. Um, Then the side that comes on the other piece of that is that nutrition. But then we also can come over and we say, okay, now we have your strength training side of what you're going to do. And if it's programmed properly, then we're identifying and we're always revisiting and assessing what the client's needs are and adjusting so that they're constantly improving. And we're doing it by staying right at their thresholds where we need to be to create a positive adaptation. We're back to our principles of overload, adaptation. Mm-hmm. 
And then we also have to recognize we have to plug into that the cardiovascular health, the flexibility, whatever's needed for that person. Um, young, younger groups of people entering into our industry are starting to get more and more opportunities to receive education around that from organizations such as the Institute of Motion, you know, in these different groups. Strong First. Um, these are all great organizations. Again, you ju we just have to watch out for taking a dogmatic approach. We need to blend them all in. Kind of find the principles, extract them, and then apply them to Yeah, the and apply the ones that work for you and your clients. Yeah. There's lots out there, and the toolbox can get really deep, and by the time it gets that deep, the coach gets overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And like we talked about before, if you come overwhelmed, you just don't know what you're doing anymore. Yeah. And you kind of just throw your hands up in the air and you're done. Yeah, and that's that's where the lesson that got really driven home when I was watching how Mike Boyles handles his programming and what's allowed in, that's where it made the most sense. Now this makes sense. It's not that I have to have everything to throw at everybody all the time. Gotcha. Can you talk a little bit about your company, Carbon Life, what you guys are doing? Um, yeah. So, again, we're, we're trying to drive home this education piece. Okay. We really want to... Um, empower the population. Uh, one of my one of the things I, I said for a while in life was I want to tear down the bricks. I want to take the gym apart. Um, too many gyms are just a lot of equipment. Yeah. You know, uh, and then people aren't learning how to move, and then they're not having great balance. And you know, if I fall down and break my hip when I'm 65, on average, I have about two to three years of life left. It's crazy. You know, it's, it's, it's like a death sentence for people. Um, and that's not all the time, but that is, that's, that's what the, the stats show us. So I like the idea of tearing down the walls and getting people involved in building community. And so one of the things that we're really focusing on outside of education and development of uh, teams of coaches is also the community of the clients. And how can we... <clears throat> excuse me, interject ourselves into the community. And again, that's identifying what the community's needs are and building into it. Um, and so we're, our, our biggest goal is to inspire people to take care of themselves, develop intrinsic uh, motivation to move every day, and then empower them with the tools and the things necessary from an education standpoint of movement, training, et cetera. Uh, nutrition, whatever their needs may be, so that they can elevate their lifestyles. We want to be the front line of healthcare, and we believe that our industry is the front line of healthcare. I believe our industry is the front line of health healthcare, and that's why everybody's trying to get in it. Yeah, that's why every PT, or not every, but that's why PTs, chiropractors, they want to lecture to trainers about how to do stuff. They're not lecturing to their own crowd about being better. They're coming to our industry. Because our industry is where people are investing in themselves. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget this in New York. Um, stock market's crashing. Everybody's losing all their money. Right? Just a couple years back. What, five, six years ago? Right? Five years ago? Seems like it. it was yeah, in 2008. It, it might, might not have been that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So eight years Nine ago. Nine years ago. Nine years ago. All right. So I'm, I'm slow. Um, but, yeah. So people are losing their jobs. Well, half clients work on Wall Street. And they're losing their jobs. And you know what they all did? They invested more in taking care of themselves because they knew they needed to deal with the stress. Yeah. They knew they needed to do something for themselves. We had more people come and join and start training then. 
we're the front line of healthcare. We're where people want to take care of themselves. And people want more and more. I think the community of people is starting to more and more recognize what the healthcare crisis we're having as far as getting insurance. Um, I think that more and more people are recognizing it's not about paying into this thing just in case something happens to me. I need to do things for myself to prevent these things from happening. Mm -hmm. So that's like we, we really want to help people do that. And I think that we are the front line of healthcare. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a different platform for personal trainers and general population? We're developing a different platform, but right now it's kind of the same. Okay. It's, it's the context of what we're discussing with people. So when we talk to uh, corporate lunch and learn or we get ourselves involved in a small group conversation uh, or a small group training situation with clients or it's one-on-one, uh, we're educating them about here's how we do program design. Here's why we need to do your cardiovascular training. And, and, and we're trying to show them from a, a, a platform that's what we're utilizing from our assessment standpoint. And that's everything from genetic testing and blood work to non-invasive questionnaires to sit-down conversations. Uh, that's everything from our you know, uh, body compositions and our blood pressures. So we lay it all out and we take a look at it. And we go, well, here's where your meds fit. Here's how they're going to influence your outcomes and any goals you might have. And we're not telling people whether to take their medicines or not. Um, we're educating. If you're empowered to know why you take something, and, oh, did you know this that you're taking contraindicates this drug, and they, they actually clash a little bit. But this drug you're getting from this doctor, and this drug you're getting from this doctor. And you're trying to figure out why you're having chronic headaches and you're suffering from fatigue, as an example. It's so interesting how that happens because I have friends that are getting prescribed multiple drugs that will bring you up, bring you down. And it's just like they're overwhelmed with so much stuff. Yeah. And, and most of the time we don't need any of it. Yeah. Most drugs that people take for chronic care are acute care drugs. We're not supposed to take this stuff. And they're all toxic. I mean, they're, they're necessary. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going down the wrong soapbox with that. But um, people don't know. They trust that this was prescribed to them, so they take it. Um, and now on top of that, as an example of a client we dealt with or we're working with now, um, the genetic reports come back and they tell us about potential risks that this person could have, things that could be unlocked genetically, right? So these genetic potentials that are all like red flags, they're over here taking medications that they shouldn't be taking because of these red flags. Mm -hmm. They should be taking something else maybe. So by being able to share this information, they get empowered and they end up improving their lives. Um, because then they go to the doctor and they say, I just have one or two questions. Most of the time they can send an email. And a lot of times what we're running across, including with this recent client, the doctors go, oh, well, let's, let's talk about that a little more. Because it just got missed. And it's not the doctor's fault. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the medical profession, again, is a healthcare crisis. And we all know that. Right? It's yeah. not that the doctors aren't educated, that they're not smart, and they're not capable of doing their job. It's just they're not allowed to do their job. They're, th they're not thriving. They're surviving every day because the basic principles of their practices aren't being followed. Back to the checklist of principles. 
because now they have to follow an insurance model and the insurance model is preaching to them. So they have to see X number of people. They don't get to talk to the people. Um, it's the same example that we like to share with our, on the other side of this with our trainings. How often do you go to the doctor's office? A question I like to ask in a room. Who here has ever been to the doctor? Was your experience something like this? You went into the doctor's office, you filled out a bunch of papers, you sat down for an extra 30 minutes, you got walked back into a room. <laughs> a nurse came in and she took a couple of vitals. She said, the doctor will be with you soon. You sat there for another 15 minutes to an hour. The doctor comes in, does a couple of the same things the nurse just did, looks at you, asks you one or two questions, turns their back to you, writes you a prescription. They did an intake, an evaluation, and they turn around and prescribe something for you. They turn around, they hand it to you, and they say, here, try this for two weeks. Come back if you're still having some issues. And we walk out of that doctor's office. I don't even know what's written on this piece of paper. Can't even read it. But I'm supposed to take it three times a day for the next two weeks to see if I get better. There's been no collaboration and no health care. And it's not the doctor's fault. The doctor, I'm sure, would be more than happy to sit down if they had the time in their day to explain, well, this is what my thought process is around treating you. But instead, they have to see so many people that I just got the same prescription for my stuffy nose as the lady that's 75 years old that left the office for a sore throat. Because wow. he figures you all got the same cold, and they write you the same drug. And But you don't get any collaboration or conversation about it. What if I don't want to take it? Is there some other paths I can take? Maybe is there something homeopathic I could utilize for that? You know, do I need a little oregano oil instead of this antibiotic type thing? Is that strong enough? Or is what I have need something stronger? Like, you don't get those conversations. So don't be a coach that does that. Don't look at your client and have, do your intake, gather this information about them, and then just start telling them what to do. There's no collaboration. There's no trust. We haven't developed a relationship. And that's what happens too often. So we talk about the same things yeah. with our clients as we do with our coaches. It's just in different contexts because we're trying to train the coaches to be able to go deliver that information to the clients and to view that, to view it all rather than be stuck in a dogmatic approach of, no, I'm just a personal trainer. And I'm a personal trainer and I'm a waiter. You know, uh, that's, that's the other thing I've run into in California a lot. Because <laughs> people have four jobs. Yeah. And so the other piece of change in the industry really is, it's got to be seen as a value. Absolutely. We're professionals. And, I mean, I've said this so many times. Uh, I used to not value what I did very much. Um, I can say through my journey in the fitness industry, and even for meeting with you today, um, you've, I feel, I feel that you've empowered me so much with so much confidence in what I do as a fitness professional and as a health coach. Um, so I just want to say thank you for that because, I mean, before I used to say to people that uh, I felt like I was a step above a stripper, and I had no <laughs> idea, like, the value, the impact, the effect that uh, we could have on people's lives if we just take the time to communicate with them and to listen to what their needs are and not to just take on as many clients as we need. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's incredible, Rick. Thank you for that. Well, thank you. Um, a couple things here to wrap this up. What is the best piece of advice 
you've ever gotten from someone? Show up. Show up? Show up. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, don't passively go through life. Show up for what you're there for. So if your purpose is to come exercise, don't cancel. Don't bail. Just show up. And when you show up, show up with the mindset ready to do it. Mm-hmm. That's what you're there for. Um, if I'm an accountant and you give me your taxes, well, if I don't show up when it's time to fill out your taxes and communicate and talk to you about them, well, do you want me doing your taxes? No. So we want you to show up. That's, it's, it's why are you here? Show up and do it. It's a, a component of integrity to me. I like that. What is the... Can you remember a success story that you've had with a client or maybe even with a group of athletes besides the soccer one that uh, really touched you? Well, they happen all the time. Uh, I think the more we're invested in our clients and the more we see their success... Then, then it happens constantly. Uh, the, uh, something extremely recent that took place, um, and everybody that knows me will tell you I'm not into like frou-frou stuff, and you know I'm not a super emotional person. <laughs> um, uh, that uh, you know a client broke down just as we're starting to do a warm up, um, and she starts crying. Total disclaimer and honesty. I'm like, oh Christ, what's this? In my head, but then I'm like, wait a second, like I'm, I'm here in support of this person, and I care about this person, in front of me, and something's happening, and so we had a conversation, you know, about what's like what's going on, and what she shared with me was she just didn't believe she could do it, um, and then after talking with her, um, she she. Well, straight way to say it, pulled herself together, mm-hmm. um, worked through what she was facing, and we went on with a great training session. And now as her coach and, and with the other coaches that are working with her, the one of the key things that we now are doing is letting her know she can do it. We're guides. We can see what she's capable of. She will succeed, and she needs that support to hear it. That's the most fulfilling thing in my week. And these things happen regularly. I think as coaches, if we take the time to be guides rather than put ourselves up on pedestals, it's not our accomplishments. We're just part of the accomplishment. It's their accomplishment. They're the heroes. Absolutely. Um, yeah. What's the what's a book a book that you would gift the most to someone to anybody? Uh, well, the one that's been most recent that I've been giving to most people is called The Back Mechanic from Stuart McGill. Loves you, Miguel. Uh, it's a simple read. It's very direct, and it is successful for removing people from pain. Love it. Uh, and, and just think of the number of people in our population that have back pain. Mm-hmm. And most of us, because they never move, or they don't move the right way, or they have no trunk stability, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Uh, and that book I've watched change people's lives. Uh, and the education of working with a good trainer after that always helps. I'm going to have to check that one out. Yeah. Well, you're going to leave here with a copy today. Perfect. Thank you. You got it. <laughs> what would you say, the current you, what would you say to the old you? I should have showed up sooner. 
<laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. You know, uh, it's funny. Through all the good and bad in life, um, I'm a firm believer in no regrets. Uh, you have to grow from everything that happens. Yeah. yeah that, that would probably be it is, you know, you, you embrace all the good and the bad. And uh, we don't always learn as much from uh, people that are doing things right mm-hmm. as we can learn from watching people do things wrong and, and discerning what's right and wrong from that. Yeah. So, yeah. Rick, it's been such a pleasure. Where can people find you? Like social media or anything? Where can we connect with you? Um, I'm kind of on Facebook, but I don't really use it too much. In fact, I haven't been able to sign in for two months. Um, but there is Carbon Life and uh, Rick Garrigan on Facebook. Uh, I'll try to be a little better about utilizing that. Um, our website is carbonlifeusa.com. Um, and I'm always available. I'm happy to speak with or talk with anyone or help guide or suggestions or mentor in any way, shape, or form. So, awesome. Yeah, and I, I and the funny thing with all that is uh, every single coach, every single person I work with, being able to talk with you today, uh, this is how I learn. It's not – I'm always learning from the client. I'm always learning from the other coaches. Um, so I always love having conversations and meeting people. That's great. Yeah. Awesome, Rick. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You got it. Thank you, Cameron. That's it for this episode of the Principles of Fitness podcast, everyone. Want to give a special thanks to Rick for being with us on the show today. If you enjoyed this episode, please like it, share it, leave a comment or review on iTunes. It'd be much appreciated. And please stay tuned for the next episode of the Principles of Fitness.